This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. Hey, it's Saturday. This is a show, thus making it the gist Saturday show. I always say this, but it's true. You may, you may listen to it at any time. This is called Time Banditing by, uh, by my friend who does the Too Beautiful to Live podcast. Anyway, Time Bandits or regular, I'm going to listen to them as soon as they drop bandits. You will get an old interview as always, and I'm going to give you a new interview as well. Um, I don't know how they're related, except they're two really great guests. So the first is an interview I did on Wednesday, and it is about Gay Washington. The name of the book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. The author is James Kerchick. It was an excellent interview. It really, it's a weighty book. If you're at all interested in the subject, or even lightly interested, he will hook you because it's a book that goes well beyond any one subculture. It really talks directly about the culture. And a man who's been talking about the culture and subcultures in his own way for many years is Larry Wilmore. Five years ago, uh, if you are listening on Saturday, it was five years and two days ago, I talked to Larry for the first time. He's since been on, uh, subsequently, I've been on his show, which is called Black on the Air. He came back after a hiatus. He had the nightly show. The nightly show is no more. He started doing this podcast for the Ringer Network, and we caught up with him in 2017 for what I thought was a really great talk. Enjoy that, but first, James Kerchuk. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Every city in the United States can tell of its history with gayness, LGBT-dumb, what at a time was called homosexuality. And to a large extent, the through line is the same. The love that dare not speak its name didn't speak its name and people's reputations were at stake. So, of course, there had to be underground homosexual communities. But Washington's a little different. And in this new authoritative book about being gay in D.C. and the history thereof, James Kerchick puts his finger on the phenomenon of, well, as the book says, Secret City, the Hidden History of Gay Washington. James, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. And that's it, isn't it? Secret City isn't one of these titles like, oh yeah, that would be good. It is so essential to understanding what drove so many people underground and lives to be ruined in Washington, D.C., the urgency mm. to keep secrets. 
Yeah, well, you can think of secrecy as a form of currency in Washington, D.C., in the same way that, say, fame or celebrity is the marker of status in Hollywood. Your access to secrets is what gives you power in Washington. And that starts around World War II when America becomes this global superpower and starts building a national security bureaucracy. And this is what makes, I think, homosexuality such a compelling subject uh, through which to study Washington, is that there was no worse or more dangerous secret that you could have than that of being gay. Um, it goes from being a sin, something that's just condemned in the Bible, and it's a mental illness, right? That's how homosexuality was universally considered. It goes from a sin to being a national security threat because the fear is that gay people can be blackmailed, that they'll be susceptible to blackmail because they'll do anything to protect this terrible secret. And then later with uh, the rise of Joe McCarthy, homosexuality gets conflated with communism. Uh, and the Red Scare has a lavender component called the Lavender Scare. Yeah. And the fear is that all these sort of sexual nonconformists or sexual subversives are also going to be political subversives. Right. So the idea that there was a vulnerability to the homosexual because of blackmail, was this a legitimate fear? I mean, was this just a notion that people concocted and said it must be true? Or were there many cases that people could point to and say, see, that person's homosexuality sort of exposed and made us all vulnerable? So the basis of this belief, it was a uh, an Austro-Hungarian intelligence officer named Colonel Alfred Radel who in 1913 gets caught spying for the Russians. And they're so embarrassed in Vienna that they basically put out this story that he was blackmailed because he was gay. And he happened to be gay, but not until many years later after the Russian archives opened do we realize that this was not true, that he was actually just greedy and he had a very expensive lifestyle, he had a, he had a cellar full of wines, he had four cars, he wanted money. But the story, it becomes a legend. And Alan Dulles, who's the first civilian director of the CIA, he had been stationed as a very young diplomat, as a foreign service officer in Vienna in the immediate aftermath of this scandal. And the city was just sort of, it was still living under the shadow of Colonel Radel's treason. And it becomes very influential in Alan Dulles's mind and basically all these Western intelligence officers. And this is the only case that they can point to. And in fact, after the Cold War ended, the Defense Department commissioned a study where they looked at over 100 cases of treason, of, of American people in positions, uh, government positions who gave away secrets um, and there were six people who did it because who, who did it who, who were gay, six people who were gay, but not a single one of them did it because they were blackmailed. Mm -hmm. So there actually was so, so there actually was never a single example yeah. of a gay person of a, of a gay person blackmailed into giving information because they're gay. And I, I actually come up with a, with with an example of a, of a gay man. He happened to be a journalist, Joe Alsop, Alsop who was who, they, they got him. They nailed him. They gay got him. He was the Russians like, nailed him. Yeah. The Russians in, in 1957, they set him up with a handsome young man at a hotel. They took photographs. The next day, these KGB officers bust in. They try to get him to become uh, basically an, an asset for them in Washington. He declines and writes a letter to the government, uh, to the FBI. Oh, he writes it, he gives it to the CIA. Mm -hmm. It ends up in J. Edgar Hoover's hands, but he goes through the entire story. He he describes his home, his gay history. He says, I'm a I've been a homosexual since I was a young man. This is this is an act of great folly, but I'm admitting it to you. So he actually did exactly right. what he would have been supposed to do. And yet 
the government persists in this very destructive policy. And that didn't destroy that didn't destroy his career though, Elsa. No, it didn't. Yeah. He's he's a rare example of someone. But he wasn't who, he wasn't a government employee. He was he was a journalist and also he wasn't uh he he was so such a powerful connected to the Roosevelts that he kind of made his yeah, he he was his own free agent and and sought after, yeah. He's not the best example of 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 someone because there were far more people who had no power, who had no influence and who were in similar situations as him and lost their jobs. But it's funny, again, in the 19, early 1970s, those same photographs that had been taken 15 years earlier started appearing in mailboxes across Washington. The Soviets, we think it was the Soviets, it could have been some other intelligence agency, who knows, but they were sending them to his enemies in Washington. Now, that it's interesting because today, let's say if, uh, I don't know, if Jim Acosta got photographs of Tucker Carlson in a compromising position, presumably he would do something with them, right? They'd probably be on Twitter in, a, in an instant. But this was an older kind of Washington. And, you know, Joe Alsop had these relationships with people that even his worst enemy, uh, Art Buchwald, who was a columnist at the Washington Post, he was not going to do anything with these photographs. Although what would be a compromising position for Tucker Carlson? Hugging an immigrant? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, you're in the book, there are plenty of examples of people falsely accused of being gay. And sometimes if those people have the wherewithal and power to get out of it, they do. But sometimes yeah. their career is ruined. There are people who were gay and were accused and lives were destroyed and sometimes, uh, you know, driven to suicide. And yeah. there were there was the rare person who was actually caught up in a homosexual sting operation to no effect and nothing happened. The entire yeah. book is a story of a panic about homosexuality where unlike communism, th there are no bona fide examples of this panic right. having any justification. And I should add that even the people who you know, sh show themselves to be at least on the side of uh, what we would think of the moral stance now. John F. Kennedy, let's say, who had not only no problem with homosexuality, were friends with homosexuals and yeah. hated the people against them. Like, all of those people did kind of believe, yeah, well, it is a liability. We have to watch out for this, which is this self-reinforcing loop. It is. And I think it's something as a historian, as a writer, as a journalist, or as a reader, you have to put yourself in the context of the times in which you're writing about. And so this was a universally held belief. There are very rare examples. There's one journalist, Max Lerner, who was a, a writer for the New York Post back when it was a liberal paper. And he does this great series in 1950 called The Washington Sex Story, right. when Washington was really in this panic. And he interviews the chief of police who's arresting gay people in sting operations. He interviews people on Capitol Hill. And he can't come up with, as you say, any evidence of gay people being potential spies. And he kind of calls this out for being hysterical. But he's such a rare example. I mean, there's hardly anyone um, is, is questioning this. And so I think one thing I've learned writing this book was just to be very skeptical of sort of, you know, the hysteria du jour or whatever the moral panic is, because particularly as a, as a gay person and you read a book like this, or even as a straight person, you look back on this era now and we shake our heads or we laugh sometimes when we read these quotes of what they're describing. Right. But you have to understand this is what everyone believed. Yeah. So here, there's a hero that I hadn't heard of beforehand in the book. Let's go through the presidents. I, I think you'd go from uh, Roosevelt to Clinton. Yeah. Um, generally, they were all, they all showed themselves to be fairly decent people, even at times Nixon, I should say, but no one really took that firm a stand. But from going through the record, who would you say 
uh, judged against the standards of their time, acquitted themselves the best? And who are you most disappointed with? Well, they're pretty all bad <laughs> on this issue. Um, I mean, you mentioned JFK earlier. He's interesting. I mean, look, the policies of the Kennedy administration were no different than those of his predecessor or his successor. They were still purging gay people. Yeah. He, as an in, he as an individual had a much more enlightened attitude about homosexuality, and there's several reasons for this. One is that his best friend, Lem Billings from Choate, uh, his, his very best friend, was gay. And he was very relaxed around Lem, obviously, and it didn't bother him that his best friend was gay. And he invited sort of other gay men into his orbit, like Gore Vidal or Truman Capote or William Walton, who was the arts advisor right. to Jackie in the White House. And then also, and this is just me kind of hypothesizing, I think Jack Kennedy had a very unorthodox sex life himself. Yeah. Which, if the American public at the time discovered what his sex life was like, would be appalled. And I think he understood this. And this maybe made him somewhat sympathetic towards gay men who also had unorthodox sex lives by the standards of their day, right? And so he he is he has a more relaxed attitude. Um, and then it's pretty – well, then Reagan is interesting too because Reagan, again, personally, we know, has gay friends. Nancy is just surrounded by gay men. I mean there's a photograph – that one of the, the pages in my photo insert, it's just – it's called All the First Ladies Men. And it's just photos of Nancy and all her, her gay hairdressers and courtiers and – you know, Jerry Zipkin, who was her walker, brought her to society events. But of course, the policies of the Reagan administration uh, on the major issue of the day related to gay people, AIDS, was was terrible. Bill Clinton um, is an important figure, and it's very fashionable now to hate the Clintons and the Clinton administration and to just tar them with, you know, all the sins of our current era. And certainly on gay rights, there were major missteps, the Defense of Marriage Act and um, the gays in the military, don't ask, don't tell. But you have to understand, when Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992, he was the first presidential candidate of a major party to openly appeal to gay people as a voting block. He actually gave a speech, a big fundraiser in Los Angeles that was directed towards gay people. That's a watershed moment. And then once he's elected, they are actively recruiting gay people to serve in the government. And just imagine how much of a dramatic change that is to go from decades of gay people being kicked out, purged, barred from serving in government to now being welcomed. And then in 1995, he lifts the ban on gay people receiving security clearances, right? So he reverses that policy that we talked about earlier. So I think he's an important, he's an important figure. And the book ends with Clinton because of that. Obviously, you know, gay history and gay issues go on for, for years. But I decided to end it there, that I thought this is a book about the secrecy. Yeah. Uh, the secrecy and sort of the, the, the formal secrecy, the formal you know, mandate for secrecy ends in 1995. That's not, that's not to say the closet went away or that homophobia went away. But in terms of the context of the book that I've written, that seemed to me like the proper point to end it. And if readers want a quick glance at some of James's work, he wrote in Politico one of the chapters of the book, which was about how they, uh, how Republicans again tried to move <laughs> against Ronald Reagan for not just having uh, gay advisors, but possibly Ronald Reagan himself, according to these charges, was gay—a yeah. charge that was not proved. Give me a sense of the Lavender Scare. What was the scale of it? <laughs> 
I mean, I, the numbers I've come across, the estimate from seven to ten to fifteen thousand, but it's it's hard to know because not every agency was reporting as diligently. You know, the State Department, because they were under such pressure, would would publish numbers every year, um, and some other departments would as well. And from that, we can get a rough estimate. But it's very difficult to know. A lot of people probably quit before these investigations went full went went the entire way because they didn't want to get discovered so they might have quietly left the service and then there's just the numbers of how many people didn't even apply for jobs mm-hmm. right because they knew I'm a, I'm a gay person I have no I mean, this just isn't for me right and so you just think of the massive waste the massive waste the lives that were ruined the talent that was denied our country um, because of this policy. I think it's, sa- it's safe to say that it was as equal to or probably greater than the effect of the Red Scare, just in terms of the people who lost their jobs in the federal government. So to try to put a sense on the cost of all this, there is just the fact that you know these are deeply immoral and unethical acts of discrimination. There is the fact that plenty of very well-qualified people were driven from public service or, you know, knew not to even apply. There was the waste of effort, government effort, official Mm. effort. There was arming the worst people in America with a potent line of attack. You add it all up. How are we to conceptualize the costs of everything you write about in the book? Well, I can take a small example. Um, which is the first story in the book is that of Sumner Wells, who was FDR's undersecretary of state, a brilliant diplomat. He basically wrote the Atlantic Charter. He was driven out of government service because of a gay scandal. He also happened to be one of the few people in the State Department who was remotely sympathetic to the plight of Jewish refugees in Europe uh, at the time of the Holocaust. If he had not been driven out of government, might our country have accepted more Jewish refugees? It's a counterfactual question, but it's worth asking. Um, That's just one small example. Right. Oftentimes, those kind of undersecretaries, two or three in charge, play an an extremely crucial role. Right. You know, if you look at things that could have been worse, the Palmer raids, for instance, someone who is emboldened to do so uh, takes control, and that could have been Hull. Yeah. And I also think with the Reagans, you know, we talked about them earlier, but I think the fear that Reagan and his wife, Nancy, and his very close advisors had, that he would be perceived as too close to gays because of his Hollywood background, because of this scandal that that I discovered uh, that, that was excerpted in Politico last week. Um, there's an anecdote I tell about one of his first movie roles. He was basically told to play the role of, of a gay best friend right. in, in a movie with Betty Davis, and he's very... Uh, sort of offended by this, you know, just playing the role of a of a someone who might be alluded to as being gay, because of course you couldn't explicitly show right. gay people in cinema um, in the 1930s. I think that that played a role in the really abysmal um, uh, policy or really ignorance of AIDS. Uh, I think there was this estrangement be- uh, from anything that would be perceived as being too queer, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. too too gay. Uh, and I think that, and I think that had an impact on Reagan and, and Nancy Reagan. I really, I really do. Yeah. Although talking about counterfactuals, I mean, as we know, Ed Koch, mayor of New York at the time, was gay, and he was so afraid of the intimation that he was that he was not yeah. a great uh, politician in terms of uh, responding to the AIDS crisis. And I think that goes to the point that I want to drive home, which is you know, we talked about some villains 
Um, we've talked about some bad policies that were pursued by the Reagans and Ed Koch. I think the real villain of this book is not any individual. It's the closet. You know, it's this, it's this, what I refer to as the specter of homosexuality, that, that, it, that it transfixed and terrorized. It really terrorized us as a society. Um, and it drove people to do terrible things. And you mentioned Ed Koch. And, you know, my first, as a gay person, my first instinct or my first feeling about him, it's not anger or venom. It's pity. Yeah. It's sadness yeah. that, that this man who, let's not forget, this man represented Greenwich Village. He represented the heart of, of the gay rights, of the gay liberation movement. Stonewall was in his district, yeah. right? Even Even he did not feel for whatever reasons, that you know, these complicated reasons, that he felt the shame, that he could not come out. And he didn't come out at all until after, until he died, right? The New York Times just posthumously outed him a couple of weeks ago. Who am I, really? Who am I, as a gay man growing up in a much better era and time, who am I to condemn him? I mean, we can, we can criticize him for the policies. Of course we can. Absolutely. We can criticize him for any policies that he pursued or didn't pursue as a public official. That's our duty as citizens. But as a gay man, I find it very hard to condemn this person who grew up under the shadow of the Lavender Scare. He he grew up at a time when being gay was a crime, when it would destroy your political career. And I think that's something that we all have to take into consideration when we're writing history history, and we're, and we're uh, reading it about gay people in this earlier era of our country. The name of the book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It was written, and I was joined by James Kerchick. Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Larry Wilmore is black on the air. Actually, only half of that is true. He's black. But he's on a podcast. That's the name of his new podcast. I guess kind of in the cloud, but not necessarily on the air. You know Larry Wilmore from such TV shows as Sister, Sister and others since then. Hello, Larry. Thanks for coming <laughs> I love in. that you go with the Sister, Sister credit. Yeah. I wanted to go hey, deep man, in that's, the well. That's still got a lot of juice. Those twins are still tearing up showbiz. I would say yeah. of the shows you were on, many oh. appeal to similar, like overlapping audiences. Sure. And then that, if you had to map the yeah. universe of Larry shows, that is way out there. Well, I, it's amazing. A show like Sister, Sister, it was kind of, it had an appeal like Fresh Prince, actually, mm -hmm. where multiple generations, they just fell in love with those girls. And they yeah. like following their lives and stuff. And they've been on other shows. And they keep going back to reality shows because people just like them. They're yeah. just people that people like. How was your persona mm -hmm. as daily, a senior black correspondent on The Daily Show uh, different from your stand-up persona and your real-life persona? Oh, wow, that's a great question, you know. Um, I think if you're going to be successful at something, you have to find a core of yourself in whatever it is, and either you're doing an exaggeration of that core or you're extrapolating it in some way, you're pulling something from it. So senior black correspondent, we were trying to figure out, I remember trying to figure out how to do this first because... Stephen had just left, I think, at Helms, those guys. And Stephen was the best at doing that 
Stone Phillips, you know, fake correspondent, iron jaw type yes. of sound like an anchor type of thing. He's really his send up of that was brilliant. Right. And very carefully observed and all that stuff. But Stephen was so good. He's in your ear when you're trying to do it, mm-hmm. which is not good because right. you're doing a, a worse a, a pale imitation of his thing. So you have to find what your thing is. And for me, I approached it from an acting point of view, you know, of well, who am I? What's my point of view here? And somebody suggested, well, maybe you should be a Republican or that. I said, no, I don't want to be the opposite of what our expectations are. And I thought, well, my nature is to be contrary. You know, if the crowd is going with something, I'm very suspicious of that. And I'm going to go somewhere else. But it's not always going to be the opposite so much as it's going to be contrary to what we're thinking, you know. And that's once we got that, I knew, okay, so that's my point of view. I can always own that. And I can always find the truth of something from that. And it's what I've always done in my work. And I didn't even know it until I had to put a definition on it, I realized, oh, I've done that my whole career. Yeah. So what in stand-up was, where do we see examples of contrariness, contrarianism in your stand-up? Where would we have seen that? Wow, now you gotta, now I gotta <laughs> go way back, you know. <clears throat> I'll give you a very simple joke. Um, when I talked about people would look at me because I'm light-skinned and they always ask me what I'm mixed with, you know, and they did that face, are you, uh, you mixed with Something, <laughs> and I would say, look, if I was a beer, I'd be a Negro light, okay. <laughs> and I am a third less angry than the regular Negro. <laughs> so, and it's the third less angry line that is kind of contrary to what you're thinking, like because the black comic was always angry. Yeah, he <laughs> had know? to be, especially in that yes. era. Yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. So the things that when you were black on stage, you were mad at Whitey. So that notion, what I was presenting on stage was contrary to what Hollywood thought of a black comic. I was undercutting their idea of who I was, you know. Mm -hmm. I did that with all of my material. You thought it was going to be something, but it really kind of existed in a different area, whether I was talking about politics at the time or or myself or whatever. And a lot of the jokes, some of them were one-liners, some of them were bits. My act was very satirical and silly and... And some of it was straightforward and that type of thing. too. And, so. and this is why audiences loved you, but Hollywood didn't know what the hell to do with you. Yeah, I did really well in clubs because it was a real hodgepodge of just fun, funny stuff. You know, um, some of and you just didn't know where it was going to go. And some and I was had so many different types of influences. And I and I think I put all of those influences in my act like um, I could do like straight up political comedy in one breath and then in the other. I would have the audience start doing this thing. Okay, I want everybody to clap their hands over here. Okay, now I'm going to divide the audience in half. Keep going. Now this half, I want you to do your arms like this. Go, woo, ooh, ooh. Okay, now everybody, this, do your arms like this. Go, woo. Okay, everybody, you got to do it. And then I would turn around and I go, and I turn back, go, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> and I turn around like I'm about to start. And I go, keep going. And, I go, and they're doing this, woo, woo, woo. And they're doing all this. And then I would turn around and I would tell them this. I would put my hands up for them to stop. And it was like a 10 second pause uh-huh. before I spoke. And I was say. I have no idea for this. I'm really sorry, you guys. I'm, I'm really sorry. I apologize to you. I have no idea at all. I didn't even know what I was thinking. Yeah. Woo, woo. I don't know why I had you do this, but you should. You guys looked hilarious. I mean, what what did you think I was gonna do? What did you uh, think I was gonna do? But the audience loved that because yeah. I took them on a little, you know, conceptual journey. Yep. So a lot of my humor is conceptual too, yep. where I'm setting up an expectation for you. And then it's met. And once again, that had a contrary ending. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it went against your expectation in a way that you couldn't predict. That's that's Andy Kaufman or Steve Martin. And uh, those yeah. are part of my influences, yeah. too, as much as where in the know, act them. would you do that, by the way? Would you bust that out early? To no, that would come about 
three quarters of the way through because that's when, see, here's how a comic thinks. That's when they're handing out checks mm-hmm. and people are signing checks. So they, what do they call know, that? The check break or exactly. something? Exactly. So, so the check cle- breaks a killer. You, you can't do all your subtle, clever material. <laughs> you know, you got to be hitting them over the head right. with stuff. I have this observation, and tell me if it's right or wrong, but sure. please tell me it's right. Um, I find, I'm sure it is right. <laughs> I, find, I found that the, oh, if you look at the different personas of the Daily Show mm-hmm. correspondents, the over-the-top buffoonish opposite of who they were mm-hmm. were the white guys, mm-hmm. whereas you and Jessica and Wyatt and Samantha, none of you did that. None of you were right. really, I mean, you were crazy in different ways, and sure. maybe Samantha right. uh, was saying things that she wouldn't necessarily agree right. with, yet you really got a sense of her. She whereas, was almost the sex potty type of thing yeah, early yeah, on. Yeah. You know, she did that move a but lot. Steve yeah. Carell was far dumber than he is, and Stephen Colbert was like Correct. a mean blowhard, and even John Oliver played yeah. the blowhard, and it was... I think mm. that there might be something, it might be a lot of things, but there might be something to s- the stakes of a black performer being yeah. the opposite. Like if you were a Larry Elder type, right. maybe you could, it would be harder for you to live with yourself than if Stephen Colbert were his Well, uh, it's character. interesting because I wouldn't have a problem with that, yeah. but I think it would have had a shorter shelf life at the time. Yeah. It, for me, it would have been boring because it just would have been taking the opposite. But a character that I want to do at some point like, if I were to do a different version of the nightly show um, that didn't have to follow what Steven was doing, because Steven was playing a character, and I thought the best thing for me to do is to be real. Yes. Because as my producer head always leads my performer ego all the time. Like, I have a horrible performer ego, but I have a very confident producer head, you know. And and I was like— So, meaning I, you think you did worse than you did as a performer? I always think I did horrible as a performer. But can't your yeah. producer side then—, st- then Intellectually yeah. know it did well. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Completely. But the performer ego mm-hmm. is very frail, and it it needs way too much assurances. So I don't was listen. This, to was it. this true when you were doing Titus Andronicus? Every or Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Every performer, by the way, feels this way. Yeah. So luckily, I have the producer side, so I, I'm not a crazy person. Right. Right. Because that's what drives a lot of performers crazy. Is because that they they need that assurance from the audience that everything's okay. Right. But my producer said, I said, I have to be almost the opposite of Steven, you know, in the way I'm delivering comedy. Mm-hmm. If I try to do a character, it, it, there's too much comparison going on. But if I didn't have that comparison, a character I would have loved to have done is that black sheriff who's on Fox News. Clark. I would have yeah. loved doing the yeah. black sheriff yeah. show. Yeah. Just put a hat on you. Yes. <laughs> That's half, halfway I would, there. I would, have, I would have loved to have done it. And yeah. I actually will do that character at some point because it's just a very funny character. Now, that character's funny to me because he's not just like Larry Elder. <clears throat> He's, you know, he's a he's a radio show host, but he's more of a dry to to me when I think of not that he's a dry personality, but it's one note. But the mm-hmm. sheriff is fantastic. He's a sheriff for Christ's sake. Yeah. He's got like medals, and, and his he's, he's got to be the sheriff of some place, you know. And his hat is very embroidered. Yes. like it's not just a plain hat. But also, he <laughs> must have a backstory. You're yeah. like, what's the sheriff's backstory? So this is a whole world you can invent for a character. And you can do that opposite ideology at the same time. So it has both of those things that, to me, makes for funny comedy. How would you, what's the best way to explore that? In a skit? Uh, I might do uh, it on my podcast. I'm thinking of maybe doing a couple of characters on the podcast. I might start doing the sheriff. Good. What's the podcast about? It's me basically just talking to interesting people like yourself. I love talking to people and I love interviewing. It's something I, I wish I could have done more in the nightly show, but... We were in that kind of roundtable format. Yeah. It wasn't even a roundtable. It was like three people. Who were, it was I like did a it once. Triangle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know <laughs> what I'm talking about. But it was very 
frustrating, you know, to have five minutes to have that discussion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, was, it was very frustrating. We just get started, and it's like, Ugh, you know, that kind of thing happens. But to be able to talk to someone for 45 minutes, one person, and you can really find out who they are and present them to the audience is very exciting. As I, as I think, as I compare the, uh, Black on the Air with The Nightly Show, here's another observation. Tell me what you think. Yes, I think yes, that sir. The Nightly Show, because of when it came out, mm-hmm. was a lot about... I already agree with you. <laughs> I know exactly what you're Well, but it was a lot about subtle racism, like ve- subtle pointing out instances of subtle racism. And 2017 is mm-hmm. so much about overt racism. Yeah. And it's not that we took our eye off the overt while right. paying attention to the subtle. Right. There's no reason to fault anyone for paying attention to what was subtle. Right. But man, that overt racism reared up and gave us President Trump, essentially. Yeah. From my point of view, it's just racism. <laughs> yeah, racism, racism. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, like that was a very subtle lynching that just happened <laughs> over there. It was very, uh, it was just subtle, you know. No, n- not to knock the bad. I know exactly what you. What it is is that because you had Obama there, that racism wasn't on people's mind in the same way, you know. Whereas Trump just doles it out like it's you know candy at a quinceanera. You put in a piñata, <laughs> you just bust open and it's going everywhere. But uh, my my lament is that we weren't on the sh- on the air to cover that with the uh, group that I had. We yeah. had such a good group. You did remember? you think it was going to mm-hmm. happen because of who you are? Just what do you, you mean? Did you think that Trump was going to happen because you saw Nate Silver's polls, because you read the um, National Mood, or more because of who you are and what you know in your bones? Um. Yeah, maybe like a dog sensing the earthquake is coming type of thing. If that's what you're talking about. Um, I look, I've been a huge politics fan for a long time and the presidency I'm fascinated with, you know, and how, how people get elected and why those things happen, why it's inevitable that we had a George Bush, an Obama and a Trump. I mean, that they all follow each other and Clinton. It's fascinating to me. I find elections more a reaction to previous elections than a contest between the parties. So true. You know, so I never considered Trump running against Hillary so much as he was running against the legacy of Obama right. and the Obama years. That's what he was really running against. And that's what people were really electing. And Hillary never made the case. We didn't know whether she was continuing that legacy or if she was running against it. Yeah, she you was know? trying to thread so many things rather than just boldly yeah. saying, even even risking making a mistake, yeah, in the next four she years never, of Obama. She, and if you don't like Obama, you're wrong because he got us out of the recession. She didn't make that case. She never made that case. She, she never, never made did. any bold She did case. a little bit at the end. Yeah. Bernie Sanders, interestingly enough, ran against Obama and the, and the Obama legacy. Mm-hmm. He actually did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he wanted to tear down the whole system. Um, the... The last person I can remember, and even Al Gore ran away from Clinton, as you recall. You know, he kept him on the sidelines, yeah. you know, because the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, and a lot of people think he was hurt by that. He didn't even win his own state. The last person to fully embrace... Although Tennessee was not trending Democrat <laughs> yes, exactly. for a while. But he would have won with Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although he's probably been in Tennessee less than most people said to be from yeah. a state. I've been, been there more than he is. Yeah, is, I right. think so. Both yeah. of us Anyone with season tickets, too, say. <laughs> the natural predators <laughs> no. might have been there The more. first... Uh, George H.W. Bush ran as Reagan's third term. Because Reagan is charismatic and George W. Bush was George H.W. Bush was George H.W. Bush. But yeah, that's right. But if Gore had won in the Clinton economy, yeah. I believe he could have won. Right. Gore's yeah. message is some was something like, What's wrong with peace and prosperity? 
should have just said, and Clintonism. And he seemed to be ashamed of, you know, maybe rightly so, of all the Clinton stuff, but he just didn't even have to think about all that. So, right. You know. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, uh, that's all the forensics of all that stuff. But Trump, to me, was more of a reaction to Obama. And the cynicism of it that I really didn't like was the whole birther thing and the energy around the birther movement that he started. Uh, and that energy, like the way he talked to Megyn Kelly, to me, the reaction that audience had was that same energy in the Obama stuff. That, To me, that ugly kind of energy where he's misogynistic and people are cheering. Yeah, and I guess you know? we told ourselves, sure, 25, 30, 35% of the country, and mostly in the Republican Party, that'll be quarantined there. And it wasn't true. But it's amazing. If there hadn't been so many candidates, I wonder if it would have been the same, because he was able to, to do well with 25%. That is true. Look how long he had 25% yeah. and he won. Right. Yeah. But the, the other candidates were preventing other people from popping also. Yeah. I would say the big thing was he nailed immigration. In a way, the Republican yes, Party was out of step aching. with their voter. They were aching yeah. to hear that. Yeah, I that's agree. right. And that's, that's a fault that's, in my uh, opinion... You know, there's many immoral elements to that, but he nailed the big question that activated their emotions. Is what I disagree with with my good friend, not to drop a name, but Senator Bernie Sanders. I have a slight disagreement on that where the part of his message that resonated the most was not about trade and about those missing jobs in Appalachia. It was about immigration. Yeah. I agree with you completely. But I understand why Bernie would say otherwise. Would naturally yeah, think otherwise because he has the trade message. And so for him to say, yeah. oh, look how look how well Trump resonated on trade. This is what I'm yeah. saying. It val- validates a lot of Bernie's agenda. And, and people slam the Democratic Party for engaging in identity politics. But it's okay when the identity is, is white working class people. Well, that's not an identity. That identity that's is... Just <laughs> maj- that's just okay. who we well, are, Larry, naturally. Larry, those are just normal people. People. Come on. People. That's the heartland, Larry. It's you know the what? Heartland. You know what one thing that bothered me, and I bet it well, I wonder if it bothered you, how Trump Probably. would always say, look at how bad race relations have gotten under Obama. And this mm. would drive me crazy. And there were polls yeah. and it, it extra it drove me crazy extra because people like Chuck Todd or the people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, John Dickerson would say, well, look at this poll. The polls of Americans do say race relations have gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Wait, what is that? How do you poll race relations? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that could mean uh, I hate black people more? So I'm going to say they've gotten worse. That could mm-hmm. mean I perceive that black people don't like uh, me more. Mm-hmm. That could that could be, oh, I'm doing fine. But definitely I see some stuff over here. It's a terrible poll. It's really cynical. Yeah. I don't think they did get worse. I think maybe people don't understand how progress works. Correct. I would agree with that. It's a white-centric question. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, are you more aware of racism, white people now, than before Obama? Yes! And we don't like that. (laughs) Right. Stop stop taking your cameras out, black people, and showing us racism. Would you stop it, please? I don't want to be aware of that. And plus, Obama wasn't like the black janitor. It wasn't his job to come in and clean up, like, 300 years of racism in four years, for Christ's sake. <laughs> he wasn't the mystical black man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Magical Negro is yeah, going to get yeah, rid of racism. Yeah. Why is that his job? You know? <laughs> Especially with the economy tanking, his first job is to wipe out racism. Yeah. yeah. Last question. Big one. What? What do you think? I want satire to be funny. Yes. How do you think exactly. satire can be effective, if it can at all, in bringing about any sort of political change? Well, I have to disagree with the premise mm-hmm. uh, of that. Um, the thought that that's satire's job, I think, is a faulty premise. 
it's given too big of a job to satire. Satire's job is to make you laugh. Yes. Now, if you want satire to do other things like work at a gas station and you know <laughs> go clean people's houses and that, you got to sit down with satire and yeah. have a good talk with it <laughs> and let it know it has other job descriptions. You know, but when satire signed up to do its job, <laughs> they said, "Okay, satire, we just need you to be funny yeah. and insightful." Yeah. Good, I'm in. Yeah. Count me in. I never said I knew Ooh. Excel. And What's could you also on? make people change their minds? No, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what I signed up for. Satire did not sign up for that. People are are giving that to satire, you know. So I don't think that's the job of satire. I think that's the job of voting. I think it's the job of organizing. I think it's the job of activism. I think it's the job of information, shows like this or whatever, you know. But it is not the job of satire. Larry Wilmore, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this, the Saturday show. I'd like to thank Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the senior and associate producer, irrespectively. I said that out of order, but we're going to go with it. One and the other, their interplay alchemizes to create this show every day, including this, the Saturday show. I've gone on for too long now. I'm giving you back your Saturday. Take care. <laughs>